If you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew chapter 14. We'll look at verses 22 through 33. Or the text is uh, there in the bulletin. You can just follow along as it's printed there. Uh, So, we've told this uh, to a lot of people I know, but, uh, you know, our kids used to watch a show called Wild Kratts, where they would tell you all about these strange features of different creatures that existed, like, did you know that pigeons uh, feed their young some sort of milk, (laughs) that kind of thing. We're like, no, that's not true. Uh Uh-huh, Wild Kratts says so, you know. Did you know that there is a little creature, it's a lizard, it's called, a, it's a basilisk, that is so lightweight and runs in, in just such a way, so quickly, that it can actually run across the surface of the water for a short distance. Did you know that? Raise your hand if you knew that. There was a, there was a okay, good, yeah, most, most of you watched Wildcats. All right, good. So, <clears throat> do you know what the nickname of this lizard is? Yeah, the Jesus Christ Lizard. That's what it is. You can look it up online. The Jesus Christ lizard. That's because Jesus is famous for walking on water. <laughs> right? It's pretty amazing that this little lizard can walk across water. Uh, but Jesus is famous for this particular ability of walking on water. With uh, the lizard, we understand something of the physics. Right? We, we know the mechanics of how that works. It's like the, the ratio of its speed and the surface area and the lightweight, you know, whatever, all this stuff, right? We, we, can, we can figure out, okay, it makes sense. This is not the lizard doing something impossible. Uh, but with Jesus Christ, mm, something impossible is happening. Something else, something, some divine wonder is happening when Jesus does this. And Jesus is not the only human being who's done this. Uh, So two other gospel writers, Mark and John, they also record Jesus walking on the sea. But Matthew here in the passage we're going to look at tells us that Peter also walked briefly on water that night. And that's wild. And there's got to be something significant about that fact uh, that not only Jesus did this impossible thing, but Peter also. Peter also did it. So let's see if we can find out what's going on there. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, your word raises a lot of questions when we pay close attention to it. We we pray that you would help us to pay close attention to your word. Help us to pay close attention to your son. Help us to ask the questions that you would have us ask and to hear with faith the answers that you would give us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, He came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. 
he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so when we're trying to understand the meaning of what is happening here, uh, you know, we've got to see some sort of symbolism in it. You have to. Uh, maybe you're not super comfortable with the idea of finding symbolic meaning in the scriptures. Maybe it's especially uncomfortable looking for symbolic meaning in something that we know is supposed to be a real historical event like this one. Because, I mean, if you look for symbolism in it, doesn't it sort of undermine the historicity of it? Uh, we certainly want to affirm that this miracle really happened in time and in space as it is recorded. Why should that mean that it can't also have symbolic significance? Uh, really, it's pretty natural to see something symbolic in historical gospel events. And a passage like this demonstrates that to us. If you don't allow for some kind of symbolic significance here, then this is the kind of takeaway that you're left with. When Jesus literally tells you to get, get into a boat at night, and head across the, the literal Sea of Galilee, and, uh, and then a literal storm hits, and you're fighting that storm for literally nine hours, then when you see him walking bodily towards you on the sea, don't be afraid, right, in that circumstance. And when you, when you ask him to, to come to him across the water, literally, then don't lose faith, and maybe you'll make it all the way without sinking. Right? That's the kind of takeaway that uh, you're left with if you can't see any symbolic significance in this. That, that kind of takeaway, that, that application is so narrow, it's, it's ridiculous. It's obviously not what's being communicated here to take this so literally <clears throat> that, that you don't allow it to have symbolic meaning. Right? This, this record of this event, this true historical event that literally happened is meant to help us in our relationship with God, even though none of us will be in that precise literal scenario, right? So just like last week, <clears throat> with the miracle of the feeding of the multitude, this is a sign. This is a sign that points beyond the physical reality to a greater spiritual reality. Jesus is not just looking to impress us with his ability to do impossible things, uh, and, you know, impossible things that ultimately end up being irrelevant to us uh, outside of this precise scenario, you know? No, uh, we're not just being taught how Jesus can calm literal storms, which he can do. We're not just being taught that. We're being taught how the very presence of Jesus with us means calm in the midst of storms that we encounter, even if those aren't storms of wind and water. We're not just being taught how to walk on the sea like Peter literally. We're being taught how to walk on the sea figuratively, symbolically or spiritually. So some sort of symbolic reading is appropriate. It's even really inevitable here. Uh, 
Wouldn't it be great, then, if there were some biblical precedent to help us understand what kind of symbolism, what kind of symbolic meaning we're supposed to discover here? Well, guess what? (laughs) There just may be. So in the Bible, the sea shows up a lot. Uh, It's symbolic uh, primarily of chaos. Chaos. Out on the sea, it's chaotic. There is no solid, stable ground. There is no firm footing. Even if you're on a relatively large platform floating in the sea, your footing's not very sure. The whole mass of the sea is a writhing, heaving agitation. It's a frothing madness that overwhelms us and threatens to drown us. I can get seasick just thinking about the ever-changing surface of the sea. And beyond sickening, it's dangerous. You cannot survive in the sea on your own for very long, especially not during a storm. It also represents a frightening distance from uh, safety, from where, you know, land and home. It's a frightening distance from the safety of land and home. It's a remote, empty, isolated expanse where you can be forever lost. And you put all these things together that the Bible usually uses the sea to evoke this kind of, you know, sometimes it's being poetic or whatever. The prophets use this kind of language all the time. Ultimately, as a symbol in the Bible, the sea represents the world apart from God. The sea represents the world in its raging rebellion against God. The sea represents the world in its terrifying, violent, overpowering chaos. The world defined by its distance from God and its lostness. So Isaiah says in chapter 17 of his prophecy, Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away. At evening time, behold, terror. Before morning, they're no more. Or our Old Testament reading that Joe read from Psalm 65. God is the one who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. The peoples are the parallel to the raging seas, right? So, in Psalm 89, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. So who's the God who does this? Who's the God who rules the unruly world? Who's the God who sets the nations in their place, even as he has established the boundaries of the seas? Who's the God who rebukes the storm and it ceases, who stills the roaring seas, who stills the tumult of the peoples? Who is the God who can make his own people safe, whose presence with his people means calm and safety, even in the midst of the raging world? Who is the God who plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm? Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the God who strides out upon the writhing sea, the surface of the sea of humanity who are defined by their raging rebellion against God. Jesus stands over the frothing madness of the nations, even over the tyrannical governments that threaten his people. 
Jesus is Lord, even of oppressive and tyrannical and, and persecuting governments. <clears throat> Remember the context of this passage. Just a short while ago, we looked at the death of his cousin, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, his death at the hands of Herod Antipas, who was a tyrannical ruler. Right? Remember that Jesus went out to this remote place in the first place to be alone following the news of uh, John's death. Uh, he didn't have time to be alone at first. He spent a full day healing and serving and providing for multitudes. But then he was able to send everybody away. When it was evening, he was finally able to be alone to pray. We, we think probably to grieve, to reflect on the significance of what was happening with this John the Baptist and Herod Antipas and everything. Herod represented the tumultuous, unruly world in its rebellion against God and against his ways. Herod was like the sea. And Herod had killed one of God's faithful saints. The sea was dangerous, threatening to swallow and drown. And it would appear that Jesus himself was going to be caught in the, in the sea's grip, pulled out in its riptide, pummeled by the waves until he was lost. Isn't that what it looks like when Jesus is arrested, when he's brought before the godless government officials, when he's sentenced to death, when he's beaten and stripped and taunted and crucified, it looks like he's at the mercy of the waves. It looks like he's being swept under and lost at sea. He really was murdered on that cross, but at the same time, he was also triumphant over the chaos of sin. To him, the chaos of sin, even our murderous rebellion, it's like a solid path beneath his feet. He was doing the Father's will. He was exercising divine authority. He was not overpowered like a man overboard lost at sea. Even at the cross, Jesus was the Lord striding upon the waves, coming to his people in the midst of the storm to save them. Jesus is not at the mercy of the storm. Jesus is the master of the storm. That's what we see in our passage Jesus is coming to rescue his disciples. His presence with them will mean their salvation. He isn't just walking on water to look cool. He's doing what it takes to come and help those who would be lost without him. So again, this is a setup. This whole thing is a setup. <clears throat> he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him. That's what it says in verse 22 exactly. He could have said, there's a storm brewing. Let's wait until morning. Or he could have stopped the storm from a distance, given them favorable winds all the way home without first joining them in the boat, without needing to walk on the water. But Jesus arranged for his disciples to be in that scenario, to be struggling against the storm all night so that they could learn their need for him, so that he could save them by his presence with them. So that with the dawn, they could begin to understand it would dawn on them who he truly is. And when his disciples first see him coming to them across the waves, a few miles out into the lake, probably in the darkness and in the tempest, there's something terrifying about him, about this whole thing, but maybe about him. They, they cry out in fear, it's a ghost. Right? They have no categories for understanding what Jesus is doing. 
There's no way in which you would ever think somebody would be walking across the water to you. They just don't have categories. So they think it must be some evil, deceitful spirit. His disciples often don't have categories for understanding what Jesus does. They especially didn't have categories for understanding what he was doing as he was on his way to the cross. They didn't know what would make for their salvation. They rejected the terrible things that Jesus foretold about his death. They were afraid of what his death would mean for them, which is why they told him, surely that doesn't need to happen, and which is why they fled like cowards when it did happen. Jesus makes us afraid, whether we understand him well or not. Jesus makes us afraid whether we understand what he's doing, who he really is, or not. But he doesn't want us to be terrified of him in a way that makes us keep our distance. It says, they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, obviously reassuringly, saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So when he says, it is I, the Greek is ego imi, which is I am. So this is the divine self-revelation by which God makes himself known to his people for their salvation, as he made himself known to Moses at the, the burning bush. He says, I am. This is how God makes himself known to his people for their salvation. So Jesus is claiming to be the God who saves. Do not be afraid of the one who is your salvation, even if he bursts your categories for what that means. And more than claiming, Jesus is demonstrating clearly that he is the Savior, as he literally saves them, as he plants his footsteps in the sea and he makes his way to them. So his presence will mean their salvation, right? When he gets into the boat, everything is calm again. It'll mean that the chaos and the tumult cannot truly threaten them. Jesus wants to be with them, so he goes to be with them. And Peter responds in kind, wanting to be with Jesus where he is. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the waters. So Peter, he doesn't just want to do a neat supernatural trick, like he sees Jesus doing something cool. Hey, let me try that. Let's film it and put it on YouTube or something, right? This is not something you try just for the novelty of it. Uh, John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, points this out. He says, Peter did not say, bid me walk on the water, but what? Bid me come unto thee. Peter wants to be with Jesus, not just to walk on the water. He wants to be with Jesus. He wants to be near Jesus, to follow wherever Jesus goes, even to do what Jesus does because Jesus is doing it. We've already seen Jesus grant his own ministry to the disciples. We've already seen him grant his own authority to the disciples. In the event immediately preceding this, Jesus gave his disciples a participation in his own miraculous work of feeding the multitude with these loaves and fishes. So maybe it shouldn't be a surprise that he grants this request to Peter to do like he does. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the waters and came to Jesus. And as crazy as that sounds, as impossible as it sounds, that's just a picture of the Christian life. The Son of God 
came into the world to be with us so that we could be like him. He came to make us sons and daughters of God. That's crazier than walking on water. He came to share the blessings of his life with us. He came to make his family our family. He came to make his father our father. He came to make his heavenly reception in glory our heavenly reception in glory. He came to bring us along with him so that wherever he is, there also we may be. He came to make his mission our mission. He came to give his spirit to us as our own spirit, to give his own resources for life, to live as he has lived in this world, to give those resources to us. So Peter, the one who did this, who experienced this firsthand, says in 2 Peter chapter 1, his divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Uh, If you're paying attention, that's crazier than walking on water, the gift that he's given. As, As you know Jesus, is what Peter is saying, as you know Jesus, you have his resources pertaining to life and godliness. As you know Jesus, you, became, you, you become a partaker of the divine nature. Let's boil that down. Basically, that means you become a participant in the love of the triune God, the eternal love of God. As Jesus makes it possible for Peter to follow him out on the waves, he's giving us a picture of what he came to do. He came to make it possible for us to follow him in a life like his to give us his own life, to make us like him. As we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, and only as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we can stride on the waves as he does, standing above the tumult of the nations who rage and rebel against God. That doesn't mean we're going to be untouched or unaffected. Jesus himself was crucified. That can happen to us. It happened to Peter. He eventually followed Jesus to a cross of his own. But even though the nations crucified Jesus, he was safe. He was truly safe and secure in the hands of God the Father, which is shown forth in his resurrection and in his ascension into heaven. And that is the same safety and security and salvation that he came to give us. Even though we face the wrath of all the peoples of the earth, we have firm footing in our relationship with Jesus. We are standing on solid ground in good company in the very presence of God with Jesus. We are not at the mercy of the storm. We're at the mercy of the master of the storm. And he is merciful and he is gracious and he will save us and sustain us. Of course, you know, experiencing the benefit of this is a matter of faith, uh, and our faith often falters, and it's weak. So Peter got out of the boat, he walked on the waters, came to Jesus, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. 
So Peter was uh, you know, resonating with the life and power of Jesus. He's living in step with the Spirit, filled with all the fullness of God, until his attention fell away from Jesus. And he was more impressed by the circumstances that he was experiencing than by the Lord. Take your eyes off Jesus for but a moment and you're floundering in the chaos. If you're floundering in fear, you're overwhelmed by the world, you're worried about the tumult of the unruly peoples, it might just be because you've lost track of the Lord who walks upon the sea. And then those waves will start to bury you. Stanley Hauerwas says in his commentary on Matthew's Gospel, Peter does not begin to sink and then become frightened, but he becomes frightened, and so he begins to sink. Losing sight of Jesus means that Peter, like all of us, cannot help but become frightened, which means we cannot survive. Jesus, as he has so often done, stretches out his hand and saves him. So Peter really was in the midst of a dangerous storm at sea. But he wasn't really in any danger at all with his eyes fixed on Jesus. The danger came when his attention got stuck on the wind and the waves. When he thought his circumstances were a bigger deal than Jesus, when he believed that. When he started to believe that this storm has the power to truly harm him. Even when enemies surround us on all sides, we're not actually in any danger with our eyes fixed on Jesus. If God is for us, what can man do to us, even if they kill us? With our eyes fixed on Jesus, we're more than secure in the love of God. The only danger is when we doubt Jesus, when we believe that the world might actually have the power to truly harm us, But even then, Jesus doesn't leave us to flounder in our weak faith. Even though our attention slips from him and it gets stuck on our plight, even though the things that stress us loom large in our eyes, even though we actually sin and insult his glory as we doubt him, he still stretches out his hand to save us when we call. Isaiah 41, For I, Yahweh your God, Hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. So Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of Peter, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. So both here and earlier in the gospel, when Jesus calmed a storm when they were all in a boat together, Uh, In both places, he calls his disciples little faiths. It's it's like a term that he uses. And I'm not sure it's exactly a term of endearment. Oh, you you little faiths, you know. Uh, But I don't think it's a term of condemnation either. Because if he condemned Peter for his little faith, uh, he would have left him to his drowning. Our faith is weak and small and flickering That's just who we are. So much so that it could be used as an identifying label by Jesus. We are little faiths. That's who we are. Jesus knows exactly who we are. He calls us who we are. And he saves us in spite of ourselves. 
And he wants us to know that we are little faiths so we can know who saves us. So even if it is a rhetorical question, it's an honest question worth asking. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Wrestle through that. Doubting Jesus, uh, turning his eyes away from his Savior and from his Lord, being more overwhelmed by the storm than by the glory of Jesus, the master of the storm. Doubting Jesus didn't do Peter any good. There's no good reason to doubt Jesus. So why did Peter do it? Why do we doubt Jesus and grow afraid and begin to sink? You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to sink even beneath the most violent waves in the world. You don't have to be afraid of what others might do to you. Even if they laugh at you or reject you or persecute you for your faith, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to doubt Jesus. There's no good reason to doubt Jesus, so why do we? For bad reasons, I guess. It's just who we are. Even if we have true faith, it's often weak and small. Even if we're believers who want to follow Jesus, we want to be with him where he is, we want to do what Jesus does because Jesus is doing it, even so, we still have just flickering, faltering faith. But Jesus is merciful. And we are not at the mercy of the storm. We're not at the mercy of our faith. We're at the mercy of the founder and perfecter of our faith to whom we look. He comes to us. He stretches out his hand to us. He gets into the boat with us, and his very presence brings us calm in the storm. And there's something about all of this that evokes praise from his disciples. It says, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. This is the most explicit articulation, articulate confession of praise that happens in this gospel. And the moment, it's the moment when the disciples see most clearly who Jesus is and they worship him. When Jesus is merciful to little faiths like us, then we recognize something wonderful in him. He, he is the son of God. He is the Lord. Thank the Lord that Jesus is Lord because he's merciful. Praise be to God that some merciless tyrant is not God. Praise be to God, even though we're often ashamed to name him, fearing what we'll receive in this world, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He is the Son of God, that one, that one who's not ashamed of us. Even though we often live as if we preferred him out of our lives, he was willing to give his life, to live with us forever, that one, he's the Son of God. Even though we bring insult and dishonor upon his reputation through our doubt, through our sin, he has been faithful to us. And he places the glory of his name upon us. That one. He's the son of God. Even though we're little faiths always forgetting, he told us not to be afraid. He comes to us, gets into the boat with us, and he calms us by his presence. Jesus is Lord. Jesus and not some heartless, fickle, harsh taskmaster is Lord. Jesus is Lord of the sea. He's the ruler of the unruly who exercises the divine power of sacrificial love 
And that's a power no opposition can stop. This power he shares with you, like enabling Peter to walk on the waves. He shares his power with you. He shares his identity with you as the beloved son of God. He shares his righteousness and his glory and his eternal life with you. He came to become what we are in order to make you become what he is. So it's easy to be afraid of the world, afraid of the culture, afraid of its influences, afraid of unbelievers, afraid of persecution, afraid of glorifying Jesus in a world that hates Jesus. Like the fear of being lost at sea during a storm where everything's too big for you and it all got out of hand a long time ago. But Jesus comes to you and he gives you his own life with God that no one can take away from you, even if they take your life. Because they can't stop Jesus from coming to you. Just like those waves couldn't stop him from coming and saving his disciples from, uh, through his presence with them. All the raging world cannot stop Jesus. He's already conquered the world. Even if it looks for a little while like the world is as unconquerable as the sea, Jesus has come to you to be with you in this wild world. And he will bring you with him where he is. You know this because you know who he is. You know that he is. So keep your eyes on him and do not be afraid. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing that you would send your son into the world, a heaving, tumultuous, unruly world, even to the cross. It's amazing that this path was solid footing for him in your sovereign love. It's amazing that he took this path in order to be with people like us. It's amazing that he would want us to become like him in relation to you. When he walked on the sea and made Peter do the same, it was amazing. But the truly amazing thing is that in him, you have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What God would do such things. You are more wonderful than anything in this world, more wonderful than any God we could possibly imagine or hope for. We pray that you would save us from our weak faith and from our fears Please keep our eyes fixed on Jesus through your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.